That's right, Richard. Our Lincoln visitors might want to check out that booth at Star City Pride today. Uh, it's being held at the Lincoln Journal Star tailgate lot on the north side of the Lincoln Journal Star building at 901S Street. Event parking is available um, at the Marketplace Garage, 925 Q Street. I was down there last night and it was a lot of fun. Sounds great. I can't wait to uh, to get there this afternoon. I'll be at the booth from 12 to 2 p.m. In addition to checking out our Christ Connection Point booth at the Star City Pride Festival, listeners may also want to stop by the KZUM radio booth as well. Right. So, so Richard, our topic for this morning is... Uh, talking about personhood and human disability, uh, you know, what makes us human uh, and, and what those things mean for Christian belief, especially something called theological anthropology. Um, so Christian anthropology is a technical term. It refers to our assumptions about what it means to be a human person uh, from our Christian perspective. That's right, Beth. The Christian assumptions about personhood or the essence of being a human are foundational to Christian thought. Theological anthropology informs the Christian understanding of sin and salvation, life and death, how we should treat other humans and how we should treat nature, how we should treat ourselves. Theological anthropology is especially pivotal in the Christian understanding of a bodily resurrection at the end of time, that is the eschaton. For instance, if there is a physical resurrection at the eschaton, how will our bodies look and be? Will we be the young version of ourselves when we were 23 years old? Or if we are fortunate enough to live into old age, will we be the older version of ourselves at, at 88? Or, or will we look differently? When we think about human disabilities in relation to human personhood, I think it forces us to focus more precisely on the very core, the very essence of um, what it means to be a human person from the perspective of, of Christian faith. So this is a very important topic. Thanks, Richard. Uh, I, I believe it is, too. Um, and to help us reflect on human disabilities in theological anthropology, earlier this week, Richard and I conducted an interview with Dr. David Scott, uh, who is recently a professor at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado, someone that I uh, have been privileged to learn from and someone that I thought Lincoln needed to hear from. Uh, so we hope that you enjoy this interview and uh, be thinking about your questions uh, so that you can call in or Facebook message us or tweet us with your questions uh, after the interview. David, could you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, I'd be happy to answer that. Uh, I grew up in southern and central Indiana, uh, born in the early 80s. Basically, uh, what you think of as your typical Midwestern uh, evangelical Protestant household. Um, I eventually went to college at a small private school in central Indiana called Anderson University. Mm -hmm. And from there did a master's of theological studies at Emory. Uh, that's where I first got introduced to the idea of disability theology. But at the time it was just kind of like one thing in the spectrum of topics I, I got to brush up against. Mm -hmm. And then uh, eventually ended up doing uh, a doctorate in religious and theological studies at ILF uh, slash the University of Denver, a joint program they do. Mm -hmm. 
And it really wasn't until uh, I was proposing my dissertation that I got to know Debbie Creamer better, who was working primarily as the head librarian at ILF at the time, but as herself a disability theologian, and found that uh, interests I had in what it means to be human in a theological perspective uh, couldn't really be answered unless I took things into consideration for my own life uh, from the world of disability. So uh, I don't personally identify as a person with disabilities and probably wouldn't be identified by any medical professionals as such. Uh, but my oldest brother, or my older brother, is a person with uh, profound intellectual and physical disabilities. So mm -hmm. growing up, it was just always a fact of the world mm -hmm. that people could have the sort of impairments that Jared had. Um, and then my mother uh, was in a car accident when I was a 10-year-old child and had a traumatic brain injury mm. um, for the rest of her life, which was about 18 more years. So as a doc student trying to come together, uh, try to pull together a dissertation proposal, I was trying to do something with theological anthropology. You know, how do we talk about being human in the 21st century in a way that's meaningful and, you know, other people in the tradition haven't already done a hundred times. You know, right. you're always trying to get that elusive, significant contribution to the field. Mm -hmm. you know? And for me, I realized that um, all the dominant paradigms for what it means to be human, I had been uh, trained to understand and in some ways own through my extensive theological education couldn't really account for the full humanity of two members of my immediate family. So meeting Debbie was a very timely thing <laughs> in that uh, as I wanted to take those questions on as a dissertation project, uh, she was there to work with me and point me towards helpful bibliography and, and that sort of thing. Can you tell us a little bit more about your, your dissertation? It, it focuses on the limits of human flourishing with respect to uh, cognitive disabled individuals, I believe. So, yeah, that's correct. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more ab about what you did and uh, why you think this is an important contribution that... You know, when you're looking for a dissertation topic, as you <laughs> mentioned, we're always looking for uh, something that's going to mm -hmm. make a contribution. So talk to us about that. Yeah, so when we talk about human flourishing uh, among us, you know, theology nerds or philosophy nerds or even in political and legal circles, we're talking about uh, our visions or our models of essentially human happiness, human well-being. Right. Mm -hmm. And... I had started off working on a dissertation proposal that was mostly genealogical in nature. I was trying to dig into, you know, how did the assumptions we take as given about human flourishing today come to be the assumptions that we make? Mm -hmm. And the idea of uh, disability came in as a helpful lens for both defining how human flourishing tends to get treated in Christian theology today and doing a more genealogical approach to that because it's usually uh, the mirror image of how happiness or well-being or flourishing gets defined. Even so though could, disability itself uh, is often a slippery term, it usually gets brought up as, oh, if one is disabled, then there's a lack of flourishing, a lack of potential for happiness, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, well, you've mentioned a genealogical understanding. Can you... Can you elaborate on that for our listeners? Oh, yeah. Uh, happy to. So to talk about uh, a genealogical perspective is uh, in the same way we talk about human beings as having ancestries and family trees, uh, any of the ideas or theories or theological perspectives we talk about today has its own family tree of sorts. Right. So when you do a genealogy of an idea, you're doing 
sort of a mixture of theory and history that tries to illustrate, you know, the ancestry of the idea you're working on. Okay, great. Thanks. That's helpful. Let's talk a little bit about flourishing. What's your understanding of human flourishing at this point after after your dissertation? Uh, the basic understanding I have of it is pretty consistent with what I think a lot of people would define as uh, flourishing, something that goes back at least as far as Aristotle. And that's the notion that uh, flourishing is living into your nature or the sort of being that you naturally have with a certain sort of fullness. So okay. if you think about, if you talk about your garden is flourishing, you're seeing the characteristics and the bloom of your plants or the color of their leaves or the height of their growth that you would expect to see when that plant is very healthy. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about human flourishing, there's some assumed notion of what a human being's nature is or what a human being's way in the world should be. So when you look at a particular human life, you see the fullness of those expectations being met. Right, mm -hmm. right. So... For me, where looking at disability theology as a consistent conversation partner, and particularly trying to take into account persons with disabilities that have more profound impairments, mm -hmm. I'm trying to define and understand what it means to be human in a way that fullness is the same in the life of the profoundly disabled person, or a person with profound disabilities, I should say, okay. as it is for anyone else. There's going to be some common way of living and being in the world that we see in both cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, as time has gone on, um, you know, most traditional ways, including Aristotle's way of talking about flourishing, is to say what it means to be human is understood in terms of each human being is an individual with a certain ability or set of abilities that mm -hmm. all other human beings have in common. And the more that ability is developed within them, and the more fully and consistently they can express and use it, uh, the more happy or healthy or full their life is going to be. Okay, right. In a disability perspective, there's less an emphasis on a particular ability that individuals have and more an emphasis on certain sorts of relationships that communities of human beings can share. So to flourish then is not... You know, can we see that someone meets a certain checklist of what we assume a human individual should be like and then have a certain fullness in how they can use those abilities? Okay. But full human life is found where certain sorts of relationships are seen to be enjoyed. So um, do you see that as sort of a unique understanding of human flourishing for people with profound disabilities? Or would you say that's true for... Uh, for all all persons in terms of their human flourishing, that we need community and relationships in, re in or order to truly flourish? No, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, there's a theologian named Molly Haslam who's very good at talking about this. Mm -hmm. To say that uh, living into certain sorts of relationships of hospitality and mutuality and care, this is going to define a full life for any person, regardless of how we would catalog or describe the individual abilities they have. Mm -hmm. uh, for those of us uh, who have the intellectual abilities of language and philosophy and communicating in symbols, mm -hmm. it might take on a more complex or abstract form than we see in people with profound intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, there's still going to be these embodied present relationships 
between different human beings that will be at the root of happiness for anyone. Mm-hmm. And um, so thinking back to the class that I took with you, part of that kind of the theological grounding in that notion that um, flourishing is to be in relationship and community goes back to um, the Christian understanding of the Trinity. Is that correct? Yeah. And, and, and God um, inherently being relational in the manifestation of the Trinity. Is that on target? Yeah. So as you might expect, you can have as many different uh, theological views of what it means to be human as you have views of God mm-hmm. in the Christian tradition. <laughs> right. <laughs> but right. For, ma- for many theologians, you know, probably even the majority of them still that I encounter in the, in the field of disability theology, this notion of the Trinity itself as social, mm-hmm. this notion of what it is to be a person is already to be uh, understood and defined in terms of your relationships to other people in the community. I mean, those are ideas that come right out of, you know, early Christian views of the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit that we can apply in some analogous way to human relationships now. So let, let me just push you just a minute there. What, what would you say about, you know, someone who lives, a, intentionally lives a, a, a life of, you know, alone, um, you know, mm-hmm. by themselves? Uh, without a lot of human contact, uh, that the desert fathers and mothers in the Christian tradition, uh, some of them did that. Um, yeah. And so, how how does that work? Are they not fully human if they are not involved in a human community? What well, what what would you say about persons like that? Yeah, I would say that the reasons those people seek to live in isolation or relative isolation have everything to do with how I would evaluate uh, the situation they're in. If there's someone who have themselves suffered a lot of trauma and therefore uh, have understandable trust issues with other human beings and therefore they think the best care of self is to be in isolation, uh, that's one situation. Mm -hmm. If someone has uh, bought into kind of the dominant United States perspective of what a real person is there, individual they don't have to rely on anyone uh that the more autonomous and more independent you can be the more fully human you are then if i was in conversation with that person that would be the worldview i'd want to challenge and chip away at uh, if we share other common assumptions either from christian theology or philosophy about what it is to be in relationship mm-hmm. so as we kind of maybe moving moving away from flourishing but related um could you just share your understanding generally of of like what do you mean when you talk about theologies of vulnerability and dependency that was the the title of the class that i know uh all everybody was so excited about you offering at ILIF this last quarter um so can you just explain like basically what what that is yeah, so in calling a class Theologies of Vulnerability and Dependence, this was my chance to do a, a seminar on Theologies of Disability. Mm-hmm. And one of the ideas I got from Debbie Creamer that infuses my own thinking on this uh, material is that disability shouldn't be thought of as an identity marker that applies only to a minority group or a certain aspect of someone's uh, embodied life that's located just in them and their body, Mm -hmm. but that every human life experiences some aspect of disability. You know, we all have bodies with different abilities, different shapes, different functions, and what might count as a disabling, disabling experience for me 
uh, in a certain environment might not be a disabling experience for someone else. Mm-hmm. So in talking about theologies of vulnerability and dependence, I was trying to get uh, you know, at a reading list and a, and a conceptual framework for the class that tries to take that more seriously. Let's talk about what it means to be vulnerable and interdependent first. Mm-hmm. And then after we've had a week or two to explore those ideas, uh, let's bring disability in as a major conversation partner. So to say that we are all fundamentally vulnerable and dependent is to say uh, we really are finite beings and that there's something not only inherent but inherently good about being finite and limited. You know, human limitedness isn't just a poor alternative to divine power, divine perfection. It's got Mm -hmm. its own created goodness. Hmm. Okay, so... um that leads us to another question. So if, if being flawed and vulnerable is, is inherent to being human, and, and I would agree that it is, um, how does that apply to our understanding of, of God incarnate, which is Jesus? Um, yeah. You know, how do, how do you, do you see Jesus as, as flawed and vulnerable? And if so, like, what does that mean for your theology? You know, or is Jesus not flawed and right. vulnerable? And what does that mean? Yeah, so for me, it's very important when we talk about uh, the nature of Jesus as Christ, that there is a sense of, as a human being, Jesus lived a human life like we would live. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, influential for me are passages like when Paul talks about, you know, Christ giving up glory, you know, what we, what we in the nerdy world call, you know, a canonic Christ. <laughs> right. And that uh, there's also that notion in Hebrews that like he he was tested in every way that every other human being was, but then didn't sin. So for me, it's important to talk about uh, vulnerability and interdependence as um, part of what it means to be created good as a human being. But that, uh, to borrow an idea from a theologian named Elizabeth O'Donnell Gandolfo, uh, we aren't vulnerable because sin happened in the world, but sin is a particular uh, inauthentic and harmful way of dealing with vulnerability. Hmm. So if you're able to make a move like that in your understanding of what it means to be human, you can talk about uh, God become human in a way where Jesus himself lives a vulnerable life. Jesus himself encounters limitations of what he can know, where he can be at any given point in time, uh, where you don't have to diminish the divinity of Christ to say there was an authentic way he lived as a vulnerable and limited being. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you know, the let's just, I want to talk a little bit more about, about Jesus. Um, the life and, and vision of the Christian church is, is centered around Jesus, obviously, as the... Uh, as uh, God incarnate. And uh, in his ministry, we frequently see Jesus healing the blind and the lame or the physically sick, as well as caring for those with mental illnesses. And in all of these healing stories, our assumption is that Jesus is making people fit the quote unquote normal paradigm. So how does that look from your perspective when you're thinking about vulnerability and dependency? No, in in many ways, this is the question uh, when talking about disability theology with laity and in congregations, especially people who are, understandably enough, taking most of their cues for how to think about 
Christology and creation and being human from the Bible. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I try to emphasize for my students or my peers when I'm describing to them what I do is, uh, like with a number of justice-minded ways of conceiving of Christian theology, uh, the Bible doesn't always give you everything you want in terms of a liberative word or examples that go against unjust forms of religion today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we look closely, we can find more than we might assume is there. And where that comes into play with, with disability is uh, this notion of Jesus healing uh, certain impairments and disabilities uh, is always going to seem to feed into what seem like common sense assumptions to us today about able-bodiedness and bodily perfection. Mm-hmm. But if we take a closer look at a lot of those key passages um, of Jesus' healing narratives, we find Uh, something more affirming of persons with disabilities than we might expect. So, for example, in John 9, uh, Jesus and the disciples come across a man born blind. Mm -hmm. And the disciples ask, uh, why is this man blind? Who sinned, him or his parents? Mm -hmm. So that's what we tend to call the moral model of disability. If someone has a disability, the root cause of that is some sort of sinfulness. He did something wrong and this is punishment his parents are being punished, or the world is a sinful fallen place, and this is a direct result of that. And Jesus says, nobody sinned. (laughs) And he's going to heal this man as part of making God's glory known, but before he does that, he he straight up says, like, your assumptions about why he's born blind are not fair. Mm -hmm. Um, A similar passage is when um, the man's uh, man who has uh, mobility differences, his friends are trying to bring them to Jesus, and Jesus is in a house. Right. And the best way to get him to them, they decide, is to tear the roof off the place and lower the man down. And Jesus sees what they're doing, and the way that the, the biblical passage reads is, he sees the faith in them and says, your sins are forgiven. Okay. And it's only after, you know, the religious authorities who are also there say, you don't have the power to forgive sins. He says, well, what's more remarkable, that I could forgive sins or tell this man to get up and walk? And only then is he physically healed. So even though there is a making normal of that man, it's not the primary point of the story, and not even the primary point of Jesus' actions. Mm-hmm. So there's a way of disrupting what we can think of as ableist ways of reading the Bible. But even if they don't end up at a word that's, uh, 100% affirming of a modern-day liberative reading of disability, it still helps us challenge what seem to be common-sense ableist readings among congregations. Right. The other thing that I think we talked about in class was that a lot of time, and I don't, I don't know the Greek exactly, um, that it was originally <laughs> written in, um, but is it do you know if, it, if it's true to say that we see Jesus healing, but I don't think there's an instance where we where we read that Jesus cured, and maybe there's a distinction between those two things? Yeah, without, you know, I'm also married uh, to a woman who's got a PhD in New Testament studies, and this would be an excellent question for, <laughs> for her. her. <laughs> but for my own knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. during my master's degree, I got enough New Testament studies to be dangerous. Um <laughs> One of the things we can say is that in the disability literature, especially the theological literature, there's a lot of conversation about healing and cure are not the same thing. There's overlap in the meaning of the terms, Mm -hmm. but they're not identical. 
So to say that Jesus healed a man born blind doesn't automatically mean, well, he was less human or lived a less than full life before he could see. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it also doesn't mean that uh, if Jesus uh, healed the sight of someone born blind in the sense of made him able to see that, oh, now he's otherwise spiritually in good shape. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, David, I'd like to just um, talk a little bit more about Jesus, uh, but from this, um, from the perspective of the bodily, uh, the idea of the bodily re- resurrection. Um, at Easter, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and for a lot of Christians, that is um, the resurrection of Christ points forward to um, to the end of time, to the eschaton, um, when uh, mm-hmm. Christ will return and will be transformed into into new uh, creatures uh, through the power and, and love of Christ. Um, so that, that raises a question about somebody who has a physical dis- disability um, and how will they how will they be resurrected? How will they be transformed as, as new, new creatures um, at, at the at the es- eschaton? Um, in preparation for this week, I was um, reading a, a book by Amos Young called uh, the title is Theology and Down Syndrome and he talks mm-hmm. a lot about you know what what does that mean it, it, because he uh, one of the points that he makes that I thought was very profound is that uh, somebody born with uh, a disability even with down down syndrome that disability is going to inform the type of person they become and yeah. so um, the type of person I am because of of my dis- of uh, my is informed by my my disability. So, what do you think that means when we talk about uh, the resurrection as a bodily res- resurrection? When we are oh, no, when when we're transformed into new creatures, do we uh, are are we healed, and do we have sort of a sort of a typical body or transformed? Do we take on a a new physical appearance, or or do we continue to carry that? that disability what 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 are your thoughts on that question yeah it's an excellent question and uh not too coincidentally in the last week of uh the theologies of vulnerability and dependence class i'm wrapping up at ILF right now we read uh young's thoughts on eschatology in another book of his called um the bible disability in the church and his approach in that book is very much to say okay scripture gives us this imagery about the eschaton right it's fundamentally mysterious. No one's going to be able to tell you 100% proof positive what the resurrected body is going to be like or what heaven's going to be like. But what we can do is question uh, the principles and ideas we're using when we interpret Scripture and consider the consequences of the images we claim about the resurrection and the implications they have for how we live today. Mm-hmm. So taking a disability perspective on the eschaton uh, informs the conversation in a very important way, but it doesn't resolve the issue. Okay, so disability theology shouldn't have, you know, a voice in the conversation because it solves all the problems. Right. But what it should do is give us a way of relating to one another here and now that promotes the flourishing of everyone or is more in line with some of the greater trajectories of our Christian theological inheritance. So when it comes to 
you know, what is a person with disability potentially going to look like uh, with a resurrected body? It really does expose how many different types of bodies our culture tries to lump under the heading of disability. Okay. Um, one of the one of the terms that Yang uses is he says uh, some abil- some disabilities some impairments seem pretty unavoidably uh, identity constitutive, meaning we can't imagine that person being who they are uh, without their impairment or their disability. Mm-hmm. And in theology and Down syndrome, obviously. Uh, he is the older brother of a man with Down syndrome. He's like, I can't imagine who my brother would be if he didn't have the qualities of someone with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, someone who uh, lives with quadriplegia because of a climbing accident, it's a lot easier to think of, oh, well, we will just picture what their body was most likely like before they had their accident. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, so part of what informs the conversation is um, the difficulty of defining what disability is. But one thing I would want to make sure we affirm, and this we get this from Paul and we get this from other imagery in the New Testament, that we will be raised as bodies in the eschaton. Mm-hmm. There is a bodily resurrection. We won't be disembodied spirits. You know, this notion of you have body and soul, and at the end of the day, they're two things distinct from one another— you know, that comes from ancient Greek philosophy. And also Bugs Persian Bunny philosophy. cartoons. Yeah, yeah precisely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there will be some sort of embodiment, and there will be some sort of continuity. So Paul talks about, it's like when a seed goes into the ground, just looking at the seed, you don't know what's going to be uh, harvested. Mm-hmm. But there will be some continuity between the seed and what ultimately gets taken up. And so we want to emphasize that there is some bodily continuity between who we are now and who we might be in a future resurrection. Um, What complicates that conversation is, uh, do certain images that just assume disability will be healed, are they based on prejudicial assumptions that we can find good reason to challenge? Uh And I think that we can. Uh And then the other thing is some of the problems that a a disability-informed view on the eschaton would have are the exact same problems any view of the eschaton are going to have. What does even a whole perfect resurrection body look like? Um, We've never seen one. you're someone who lives... Oh, go ahead, Beth. I was going to say, we've never seen one, so we wouldn't know. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, precisely. Uh, another question we could raise is, you know, even consider a quote-unquote normal person. You live a full life from infancy to old age. You die. What are you going to be like in the resurrection? You know, uh, right. normate uh, ableist assumptions would say, well, you know, you'd probably have as much wisdom and knowledge as you could until your brain started to decline. Okay. You'd probably have the body you had when you were 23. <laughs> okay. Like, like which you that you have been over the course of a long life will be represented in who you are going to be in eternity. Right. That's a question for anyone that takes up the question of the Christian resurrection. Uh, the trick there is to make sure that and the other assumptions we're making, we're not justifying, oh, well, if I don't expect to see you in heaven, why should I care for you so much now? Mm-hmm. If you're not going to be the part of the body of Christ forever, maybe you're not part of the body of Christ in this world. And those are the sorts of assumptions we need to challenge for the church to be an agent of flourishing for people with disabilities and not one of the things that contributes to their suffering. 
Right, absolutely. And that relates to, I mean, other topics that we've been exploring on the show of, of justice and, and inclusivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're part, mm-hmm. uh, important parts uh, of our values um, at, at the churches we serve, Christ and Connection Point. Um, and so that's why this topic of, of personhood and what it means to be human is so important to us because fundamentally it uh, influences how we act and treat one another in the world. So we have been uh, very fortunate to have Professor David Scott here with us today. Um, um, and David, we thank you so much for this interview and for taking this time out of your week to speak with us. This has been a fascinating conversation. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm thankful to be here, and I was uh, glad to get the invitation. Wow, what a great interview that we had with uh, Professor David Scott, Beth. Um, we uh, would be really interested in getting uh, folks' questions and comments about that interview and about our, our topic today, uh, which is... Uh, the thought of uh, thinking about dis, uh, physical and mental disabilities and uh, uh, what it means uh, from a Christian perspective to be uh, a human human being. The phone number to call into KZUM is 402-474-5086. Choose extension one. And uh, we just want to remind everybody that if you have a question but do not want to go on the air, uh, please call in anyway with your question, and we'll talk with you off the air and then share your question or your comment with our lis- listeners uh, in your voice. Uh, that is, we'll, we'll uh, articulate what you uh, have sh- shared with us on the air. We also have some new ways that you can share your thoughts or your questions about our show. Um, hopefully, you know, during this time period from 9 to 10 a.m., but also later in the week if you're uh, listening online, you can message us your questions on Facebook. You can just go to the Counterbalance KZUM page. Also, we have a Twitter account now. Uh, it is CB Radio KZUM. So you can tweet us on, on there as well, and we, are, we have those pages open and are ready um, to answer your questions. Beth, uh, I'm just sort of fascinated. Uh, you um, got to know uh, Professor uh, Scott through a class at Isle of uh, Seminary in Denver, Colorado. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what attracted you to that, that class in theology and, mm-hmm. and why you decided to, to choose it? Yeah, absolutely. So the, um, the, the class that I took with Professor Scott was called Being Human in the Modern World. Um, and so that sounds really deep, um, but it also qualified for um, one of my like theology credits. So at school we talk about, we have some, some classes that are ethics classes or you know philosophy classes or Bible classes. And this one was a theology class. Um, and so it intrigued me to think about what it means to be human from a theological perspective. Um, And what I, and honestly, the class um, at first was more philosophical. We looked at, you know, like what did Kant say about being human? And, and that's not really my cup of tea so much. Um, But as we got deeper into the course, uh, it became clear that for professor Scott, um, disability theology really informs his idea of what it means for any of us to be human, even if we don't identify as people with disabilities. Um, and I found it, um, really liberating, even from my perspective as a, as a fairly able-bodied person. Um, and what it came down to, um, is really this idea that 
it's similar to 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 grace something so grace is a word that we use in the church to mean like a like a free gift so that's how we view um it's a free gift from god yeah free mm-hmm. gift from god so something that that's how we view jesus uh Jesus' work on the cross as, as being a free gift for us, um, you know, that we can't earn our salvation. And, and Professor Scott um, assigned a book called Receiving the Gift of Friendship by Reinders. Um, and I ended up using that book heavily as I uh, wrote my final paper, which was supposed to be my own constructive proposal of what it means to be human. Right. Um, and so in Reinders' book, uh, you know, his thesis is really that um, to be human, we are human because of God's act, not because of anything we can do, which what that does is affirms the personhood of people who don't have, um, who can't take action or, you know, who can't, who don't have agency, meaning those with profound mental and physical disabilities. Um, so then to be human is to receive God's gift of love, God's gift of friendship, um, and also to receive the gift of love and friendship from, um, the other humans around us. Uh, and I, I argued in my paper, also to receive the gift that is creation, um, which I believe, uh, is something that God gifted to us. Um, Say more about what do you mean by the gift of creation? Mm -hmm. Um, So we have this beautiful world around us. We've talked about that Um, as, as Christians, uh, you know, I think we both, we we affirm um, big bang cosmology and those things, you know, how the the natural world came into being through science. Mm -hmm. But as Christians, we also believe that um, a a good creator God had something to do with it um, as we're told in the Bible. Um, And so I see, uh, you know, after, after, really thinking about what it means to be human, I felt uh, like I had to think about what role does the rest of existence, creation, what role do do animals and plants and the earth, what role do they play um, in this ecosystem of relationship, um, which really in Scott's view and Reinders, to be is to be in relationship. I think to exist means to be in relationship. Right. Um, And so I see us as also being in relationship with, uh, with creation and uh, as well. So God gifts us uh, love. God gifts us being. um, And I think God also gives, well, in Genesis we read that God, uh, you know, gives the creation to humans and says, take care of this. Um, and so that's a really important part uh, for me as I think about what it means to be human. I guess I would expand a little bit about on what Professor Scott would probably say um, as he says, um, you know, to be human is to be in relationship with others, with humans and with God, I would say, and with creation. And with creation. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree. Yeah. I would definitely agree with you on that, Beth. Right. And I think that's... Um, I think if we, I don't, I don't think we can leave out that relationship with creation because as we've seen historically, um, kind of some of what's happened is that our relationship with creation has been viewed as one of, of dominance. You know, we should dominate creation. We should Mm -hmm. use it for our own ends. 
Um, and I don't think that's the right way to be living. I think just as, as love and humility um, and graciousness um, and gentleness are values in human relationships and values in our relationship with God, so too they should be uh, values that we live out in our relationship with creation. Um, and, you know, I think... The, I, I think, you know, the, the little kid that, um, you know, picks up the caterpillar and, you know, gently, um, you know, pets, pets its little fuzz mm-hmm. uh, and then places it gently on a leaf. Um, you know, that's the way that we're and the way that we, you know, tend our gardens during the summer and, and care for these little green things in the ground. Um, that's what I view. You know, that's that's the relationship I think that was intended for humans to have with creation, you know, as with each other, as we help. We talked in the interview about flourishing. I think we're called to to tend to one another, um, to help one another flourish. Um, and but the being human, um, to be human fundamentally doesn't mean that we have to do that. It means that we have to receive that from others. Right. Uh, and firstly from God, we receive God's love and God's care. Um, and then the care of, of others. And, and if we're fortunate, we get and, uh, and have the abilities we can, we can love and care for others. And even I think, um, it's important some of the work that we did in this uh, class, it's important that we um, that we affirm that people with profound disabilities do not exist only for the good of those of us with abilities. So that's something that in, historically um, people have said, oh, well, people with profound disabilities exist because they teach us able-bodied people how to be better or how to love better. Um, and that's problematic. <laughs> it, it is because then it, it makes people with disabilities only have instrumental good. Exactly. Right. Instead of intrinsic good. Right. Which is what we would want to call. Right. And so, so it's important to affirm that people with, um, people with profound disabilities have intrinsic good. Uh, And so I think we can say that. And we can also say that they do, that we do. uh, So I, for instance, do receive something from them as well, which makes me more human, um, just as they receive things from me that help make them human. Um, You know, I think about the individuals in our church who are profoundly disabled. um, and certainly their existence is, has intrinsic value. Just because they are, they have worth. Um, but they also add worth to our community um, uh, in the way that, um, that they show the rest of us um, how to love, how to be, how to worship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of, kind of really, I guess what I got out of that, this class, that was your initial question and I just kind of took it from there. Um, and so, but I, I mean, I really agree with Professor Scott that once you think about it, once you think about all of philosophy and theology's answers to what it means to be human, all of our, our historical answers, um, if they can't include a person with profound mental and physical disabilities, um, it's just very clear how they're lacking. And which is what we, we looked at the cl- in, the, at in the class, as he said, you know, the genealogy of, of these ideas. Um, and what you find in a lot of earlier philosophy and theology is that uh, usually personhood comes down to agency. So being able to act, being able to, to, th- to think um, and to move 
to, to do things that will help you flourish. Um, and that, that becomes limiting when you consider the person with profound mental and physical disabilities. Um, and so I really think as we, as we consider how, what, what personhood is, how we treat one another in the world, who we include in our communities, who we advocate for, we have to make sure that our scope is as broad as possible. And that certainly includes people with, uh, with profound disabilities. Yeah, I, I completely uh, agree with what you're saying, Beth. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I really appreciated about the, um, about the interview all right. Richard's mic hasn't been very loud. We apologize. I think we've got that fixed now. Uh, what was it that you appreciated about the interview, Richard? The thing I appreciated about the interview was that... Um, um, I'm sorry, I can't... Yeah. Um, so we're really fortunate to, to have the interview with Professor Scott. Um, and as we continue to work on the volume here... Um, let me try that. Yep, there you go. Yeah, I can hear you go. better. Okay. I hope our listeners okay, the, can. Okay, the thing I was going to say is, um, you know, a few um, few uh, weeks ago, we were talking about uh, Martha Nussbaum and Amartya Sen uh, and their um, philosophical approach to justice, which is called the capabilities approach. And uh, in that approach, what they, um, what they, the, the way they approach justice uh, questions of distributional justice is to say that it's not enough to simply have equal uh, access to goods and possibilities and positions, but that we also need to provide resources for individuals uh, so that they uh, have a, a chance at, at an even playing field for, for different possibilities in society. And the idea is that each individual needs the resources in order to develop uh, their own capabilities and to be able to uh, develop themselves as a person. And uh, that's the essence of what it means to be a human is to be able to, to de develop yourself uh, and to develop all of your possibilities. And uh, I think that's a really important insight, but I, I think that the, the, the interview with uh, David Scott was really important in terms of just sort of um, raising up the possibility or, or making us think more broadly about, about persons with disabilities um, in a capabilities approach where they may not have agency. What does it mean to uh, make sure that they have, uh, that they receive justice mm -hmm. um, in, 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 in a really deep and profound sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and so often I think, well, justice for people with, with disabilities can be, I mean, of course, access is important. Um, and also being, being included in the conversation period about how we do justice. Um, so often, I mean, like even with that capabilities approach, um, which is overall good, um, you know, right. Yeah. You know, still it's about capabilities. <laughs> um, and so being brought into the into the conversation, um, I think is 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 a, a small step towards justice uh, for the, uh, those people who with disabilities. Um, and and in a sense, I think perhaps justice to some extent looks like if we talk about 
being a person means receiving the gift of, of friendship, the gift of God's love, the gift of the love and care of others, um, then, then how do we in, uh, ensure that the, the person with profound disabilities um, is able, is encouraged and empowered to be in community where they can receive those things. Exactly. Um, so I think about, you know, all the years that people were institutionalized, um, you know, kind of kept off separate. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, like I said, I just think of the people in, in our community who, you know, in years, you know, years ago. We they, tended to sequester we, people yeah. away and, and put them in a you know, in an institution. Right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, how much our community would be lacking if uh, some of our folks were, were institutionalized instead of being with us. Um, you know, and I, I think about how, you know, I, I can't speak for them, but I imagine that, that their lives would be, would be worse off if they weren't, um, you know, empowered and encouraged to be in community with, with the rest of us. Exactly. So, well, I, I'm afraid our time is winding down for today, Beth. Um, You've been listening to uh, Counterbalance, a progressive Christian radio show hosted by Beth Minhusen and myself, Richard Randolph. Be sure to tune in next Saturday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. Our topic next Saturday is sort of a counterpart, a counterpoint, if you will, to our discussion on human disabilities and theological anthropology. Uh, next Saturday, we'll be looking at the philosophical perspective of transhumanism. And what is transhumanism, Richard? Well, transhumanism argues that we should never be satisfied with the limitations of the human condition. Instead of being content with our underachieving bodies and brains as they exist now, we should relentlessly explore technological ways to develop and expand our, our human capabilities. And, you know, we, we have evidence of that already in society with uh, steroids and other drugs to enhance uh, uh, athletic performance and mm -hmm. uh, Viagra and other drugs. So the question uh, about transhumanism becomes, are we truly human when we accept our current bodies and minds with their limitations as they have involved, evolved to their current levels? Or... Is it more authentic to strive towards becoming superhumans, if you will? Mm. And uh, obviously, these questions have important implications for theological anthropology, just as uh, our discussion today uh, with uh, Professor David Scott about human dis disabilities. So tune in next Saturday for uh, what I think will be a very, very exciting uh, uh, program as we continue to think about uh, human nature.